children. He may be dismissed at children's church. And maybe even those adults who feel like a child today. Bob, sit back down. Sit back down, Bob. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, well, today, today we're going to continue our study into the seven churches of Revelation that we started, um, messages that Jesus uh, gave the churches and to us. We're going to be in Revelation uh, again, Revelation chapter 2. Um, now, we've already discussed how um, these churches illustrate problems that still exist in the church today. And I mentioned last week that we, we would like to associate ourselves with Smyrna, with the church in Smyrna, or, or maybe even Ephesus. If you remember Smyrna, Smyrna was the suffering church, and they received no rebuke from Jesus. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to be that church, right, that, that didn't do anything wrong? I mean, we'd surely like to be that church. Or how about Ephesus? the church that lost its first love. See, they, they, they were um, really adhering to doctrine really well. I mean, they were holding fast to doctrine. They were, they were just lacking a little bit of love. And so we could just keep doing what we're doing and just, just add a little bit of love to it, you know? Fortunately, today's church is sadly more like the one that we started last week, which is Pergamum. Pergamum. Pergamum is the compromising church. The church is beginning to intermingle, assimilate with the world. This church has decided that it can maintain some kind of, of Christian credibility while it also associates itself with the world. Pergamum is a, is a picture of any church, any believer that in, intermingles with the world. We can definitely see it all around us today. Today we're going to pick up where we left off last week, but... First, a, a little refresher, a quick reminder, a brief recap of what we covered last week. So the, the city, we'll just cover this real quick. The city of Pergamum was situated some 50 miles northeast of Smyrna, about 100 miles north of Ephesus, about 20 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It's the northernmost of the seven churches. You can see it there on the, on the map. These are real cities. These, these are you know, it's the thing that we need to, to understand when we read Scripture is these are not just, these are not stories. These are not just a, a mere, you know, uh, made-up thing. This, this is reality. This is real. These are real cities, and, and Courtney and I had the great fortune of, of being able to go and visit them. So it's the it's northernmost of the seven churches. It, it was built on a 1,999-foot, a almost 1,100-foot tall mesa. Sat way up above everything around it. Made it a natural force, fortress. There was a, a small village still there um, called Bergama. There's still a small town there. Um, we talked about the fact that its candlestick has never been fully removed. You know, we talked about the candlestick being removed, they're, they're the church. Um, so they apparently had, had repented, as, as uh, Christ had called them to do, and, and there's still a small village and, and a small church there. It, wasn't, it didn't have some of the advantages of, of its rivals, Ephesus and Smyrna, 
wasn't on the sea, didn't have a great trade route or anything like that, but it, it was the center of power for the region. It held the honor of, of being the, the capital of Roman Asia. And by the time that John had written this, it had been so for 250, 300 years. It was the center cog for Romans' operation here in Asia Minor. The Roman governor here had the right to the sword. We talked about that. He had the right to the sword. He didn't need anyone else's permission to issue capital punishment, to put anyone to death. He could just thumbs up or thumbs down. He had had the right to the sword. Pergamum, the name means citadel, citadel, or united in marriage, or some uh, refer to it as elevation, elevation. And all of those are fitting names for the way that the city had married itself and elevated the Roman government and culture. Um, It had the steepest theater in all of in all of uh, the Roman world, it held um, 10,000 people. I took that picture. Um, it's pretty steep. It had a large library. It was second only to the one in Alexandria. It had a library of, of 200,000 scrolls. Cleopatra was so jealous of it that she cut off the supply of papyrus. We talked about papyrus. The people at Pergamum um, just invented another even better writing service. Parchment, we talked about that. Parchment was found its origin here in Pergamum. Imperial cult, the, the worship of the Roman emperor was very big here. It was the first city to be a neo-chorus, a, a, having a temple to a Caesar. It became the capital of emperor worship. And it required almost daily worship to the emperor here. Many other cities, you had to do it once a year to prove your allegiance. Here, it was almost basically every day. So Caesar was really lord of your life if you lived here. Pergamum was perhaps the worst of the seven cities for this. Pagan temples. Pergamum was the center of worship for four of the most important pagan gods of the day. The city has cults that worship Zeus, Athena, Dionysus, it's a hard name. I don't know why I keep tripping over it. Um, When I read it, I read it just fine. But when I speak it out loud, it's tough. And Asclepius, all had important temples or shrines dedicated to them here. And you can kind of see that in the artist's rendering there. Um, The city was perhaps best known for... It's absolutely immense altar of Zeus. We talked about that. This is, this is the actual altar of Zeus that was disassembled from Pergamum and reassembled in a, a, a um, museum in Germany. Um, the temple of uh, Dionysus was the god of wine and revelry. And drinking and debauchery was, was the thing that you did when you went to his temple. The temple to Athena, Athena was the goddess of wisdom. And so if you needed wisdom for anything, then you went to her to get wisdom. The temple to Asclepius, Asclepius was the god of healing. We talked about that last week. He created the forerunner of the modern hospital. He was represented by a serpent and a rod. 
the church, not much is known about the church, its origin, where it started, when it started. Um, we know from Acts 16 that Paul had spent some, some time, he had passed by the area, it probably was uh, established um, due to the three years that he spent in Ephesus, which was only 100 miles away, and I'm sure people were coming and going. The church itself had found itself in a very, a very hostile, very pagan environment. There was a lot of evil in the city that they, that they found themselves in. And Jesus saw their situation and he wrote them a letter. So let's read the letter that Jesus wrote them and see what he had to say to them and, and to us. So Revelation chapter 2, chap, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 through 17 Open your Bible. If you don't have one, should should be a pew Bible in front of you there. It's on page 1311 of the pew Bible. So Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Jesus said, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols, practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore... Repent. If not, I will come to you soon, a war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So we began last week to look at five things that this letter um, tells us. Looked at the praise, the problem, the pollution, the punishment, and the prize. Last week we, we started with the praise, the praise found in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faith, faithful witness who was killed among you. So Jesus starts out by commending them for holding fast to his name. They did not deny him, who he was. They, were, they were, had personal faithfulness to him, to his name, or the gospel message that they had heard, which is salvation by faith. Even as they were living in such an, an evil, pagan place that Jesus said it was the throne of Satan. They were living in an evil, corrupt place They face much opposition. So much opposition that Antipas was martyred here. We talked about that. We talked about him. So they were there. They saw it happen. And still, they had not not denied faith in Jesus or in him. Jesus reminded them of, of the personal nature of Christianity. He says, I know my name, my faith, my witness. As a reminder, Christianity is, is not a religion, it's a relationship. It's personal for him, it was personal to them, to be personal for us too. Then we looked at the problem. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. 
The external problem was the circumstances of where they lived. Pergamum was the place of Satan's throne. It was an oppressive city. Jesus tells this church, I know. We see this from, from the, the many weeks that we've been studying this, that he, he says, I know. I know where you live. I know. I know it's not easy either. I know, here he says, I know you live right in the middle of where Satan's throne is. There are different opinions on, on what Satan's throne is referring to, what Jesus is referring to here. And we, we looked at a few possibilities. We looked at emperor worship. They were the first city to build a temple to Caesar. They took it more serious than anyone else. You could face execution if you didn't worship the emperor. The external pressure was used by Satan to attack the church here. You had to, you had to toe the line here. It was serious. You couldn't, you couldn't, a lot of cities you could kind of fly under the radar, not here. Talked about Zeus's throne. Some believe it's referring to the magnificent altar of Zeus. It was shaped like a huge throne. It looked like a throne. It was set high on that Acropolis, front and center, so everyone could see. Talked about that and how that kind of resembled a throne a giant God, to sit there. Perhaps that was the throne of Satan. Then there was this very bizarre, strange worship of Asclepius. Talked about Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. People came from all over the ancient world to Pergamum, seeking to be healed at his temple, the Asclepion. Asclepius was depicted as a snake, and the symbol that represented him was a snake uh, coiled around a rod. We talked about that. We see that even today with the universal, universal medical symbol that we all recognize. See it right there, right there in the center. That's called the rod of Asclepius. It's called the rod of Asclepius. And some, a lot of people think that, you know, that, that has its origin in, in, uh, from Moses when they were in the wilderness, you know, when the serpents were amongst them. And uh, he would hold that, that staff up. And it's possible that the, the Romans and the Greeks, when, when, they, when they came up with the god of Asclepius, that they took some inspiration fr from, from, that, from that example of Moses and used that in their, in their god. But that rod right there, that symbol, is called the rod of Asclepius. That's what it's called. Google it. That's the image that will come up. Rod of Asclepius, Asclepius, non-poisonous snakes roamed in his temple. And the people would come there, they'd lay down on the floor in these incubation rooms. They would hope that these snakes would, would crawl over them and infuse them with some healing power. That's what they did. They'd be in these trance-like states, hoping that these serpents would heal them from the god of Asclepius. Satanic, right? Yeah, sounds satanic to me. So that God was, was represented by a serpent. Maybe that was the throne of Satan. Asclepius, the serpent God, Zeus's throne, emperor worship. When he put it all together, certainly Pergamum was Satan's throne. It was a difficult place to live for these people. Last week, we talked about how much it looks like our world today, the time that we live in. 
This is a place where Satan's throne is too. 2 Corinthians 4.4, Satan is referred to the God of this world, right? We see his reign on this earth every day. Every day we see it. So much corruption. Immorality is everywhere. It's celebrated even. Satan is definitely on the throne. And he's wreaking havoc in the world. The external problem of, that the church of Pergamum faced is a problem that we also face today. They lived where Satan's throne was, and so, so do we. So that was the, <clears throat> the external problem <clears throat> that we looked at last week. <clears throat> now let's, let's look at the internal problem where we left off last week. It's number three, the pollution. The pollution, we see that in verses 14 through 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. This is sad. It says, but I have a few things against you. I just hate to read that part, don't you? Could you... Could you imagine receiving a letter from Jesus himself and he tells you that? How that would cut into you. I have a few things against you. So much good. So many faithful in spite of where you live. Done so much. But I have a few things against you. And then he tells them exactly what the problem is. Because you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. You, have, you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus uses the example of Balaam, a notorious Old Testament prophet for hire. And his story is found in Numbers chapters 22 and 25. We don't have time to look into it in detail right now, but you should later, maybe later today, can read that account, but let me, let me refresh your memory on Balak and, and uh, Balaam. Balak was the king of Moab, and he hated Israel. He hated them. Israel was an enemy, and, and he wanted to destroy them. So he hired this prophet for money named Balaam, Balaam to, to curse Israel. But every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, what happened? It wouldn't work. Instead of a curse, a blessing would come out, right? So finally he came up with another idea. He couldn't curse them, so he would earn his money another way. He would corrupt them. He would corrupt them. So he went to the king and said, this is what you need to do. This is what you need to do. You need to teach your women to seduce the Israelite men. Teach your women to seduce them. Then they'll intermarry. And then, then they'll start to worship the pagan gods. Guess what? It worked. He brought Israel into a blasphemous union with Satan. Idols and fornication. Destroying their power and their testimony in the process. Satan discovered that persecution often only purifies the church, emboldens it. 
and spreads the gospel even more. We've, we've, we've seen this as we've been going through Wednesday night in the book of Acts. Every time, every time the, the apostles were imprisoned, they'd be set free. They were more emboldened, right? Satan knows that. So he took the opposite tactic. He would destroy them from the inside. He would infect them. He would pollute them. These false teachers here were teaching and luring believers in the church of Pergamum into the world system of sexual immorality. Familiar? The Nicolaitans, when Jesus talks again about the heresy of the Nicolaitans in verse 15 here, when we read about them in the letter to, to Ephesus, we don't know a lot about them, but they held an early form of Gnosticism that said that only the soul mattered. Only the soul mattered. Physical things mean nothing. Physical things mean nothing. Since the body, sins of the body were of no consequence. No consequence. If you keep your spirit clean and you can do whatever you want with your body. You just have to protect your spirit, your soul. So as long as you love Jesus, as long as you trust him for salvation, do whatever you want with your body. Eat, eat meat sacrificed to idols? No problem. Commit lewd acts with temple prostitutes? A-OK. Orgies? Well, that's, that's just fine too. So there were really two internal problems in this church. First, there was the problem of false teaching. Where some of this church who were, were mixing with the pagan system. They were going to these idols and these feasts these pagan temples, they were teaching others that it was okay to go to. They said, it's okay. It's all right. You have freedom in Christ. You have freedom in Christ. God forgives you. You're under grace. You're under grace, right? It's okay. Just ask for forgiveness. You don't have to live separate. We can have our cake and eat it too. Besides, besides, we need to be a part of it so that we can help them. We need to be there so that we can be the example, right? First internal problem was false teaching, the compromise. But the second internal problem was complacency. They were not confronting these false teachers. They were saying, oh, well, you know, we wouldn't do that. I mean, I wouldn't do that personally. I mean, we, we are walking with the Lord. I mean, we're holding firm. I believe what God's Word says. Just kind of let them do their thing over there. I mean, who are we to judge? I mean, I mean I'm not perfect either. You see this so clearly in the church today, don't we? Sexual immorality is not just tolerated, but it's accepted. Not only is it accepted, but sometimes, sometimes it's even celebrated. Premarital sex, homosexuality, same-sex marriage, gender identity. Well, I, I mean, I don't believe in it, but I mean, I can't make that decision for them. At least they're in the church. At least they're in the church, right? Maybe God will open up their eyes. 
As long as we have them here, maybe somehow it'll get through someday. We just need to love them. We just need to love on them. That's what we say. It's hard because nowadays, I mean, there's probably not a person in here whose family isn't affected by this. This was held yesterday. The Youth Pride Conference for LGBTQ youth ages 12 to 18. I mean, that's not a huge news. I mean, there's conferences all over the place. I mean, there's just one here in Kalamazoo recently. I mean, they have rallies. They have conferences. I mean, that's no big deal. Not a big surprise. Until you look a little closer at it. Where's it at? Naples United Church of Christ. It's in the church. It's in the church. Now, and in case you're thinking, well, maybe they're just going to bring them here into the church so that they can present the gospel to them, you know, and, and there can be a big conversion, a revival and everything. Let me read some of the things that they were going to do or that they did at this conference yesterday. About this event, this one-day conference is created by and for LGBTQU seeking to explore LGBTQ-related issues they face today. Breakfast and lunch will be provided for all attendees as well as a drag show for some of our local drag queens. I mentioned this is in a church. Isaac Salazar will deliver the keynote address. Isaac is a young and passionate advocate in the LGBT community. He is the outreach and education coordinator for Zebra Coalition in Orlando. There will also be a panel discussion with former high school students talking about life in the LGBT community after high school. Students will also get to choose from several breakout sessions that feature a variety of presenters, some, some of which are Southwest Florida locals and others from LGBT organizations from across the state. Topics for some of these sessions will include mental health, coping strategies, mental health, gender dysphoria, Forbidden queer literature, gender and biology, kind of ironic, sexuality and science, from a biologist, <laughs> inclusive sex education, from Catherine Ross of Planned Parenthood, oh, big surprise there, huh? Intersexuality and prejudices within the community. Political action and advocacy. How about this one? Navigating a religious identity. Presented by Reverend Christy Holden. Coming out story. Homeless and foster youth. This event is free. Open to all student agents. 
12 to 18. It was held yesterday in a church. Now you think you're convincing them? You think you're convincing them by bringing them into the church? We'll talk a little bit of Jesus to, to them. Put on your drag show. Go ahead. Let's talk about these issues that you're facing. Let's sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in there. You think you're convincing them? You think you're going to convert them? You know what, they're, you're, you know what you're convincing them? You're convincing them that sin doesn't matter. You're convincing them that God will not judge sin. That it's okay. That you can do whatever you want to do. His judgment is not as severe as he says it's going to be. This is a problem because we have a responsibility as believers to not only stand firm on our faith and for our faith, we have a responsibility to defend our faith. If somebody is abusing it, we need to confront them. We have a responsibility to Christ and his church to do it. We cannot turn a blind eye. Pretend it's not there. We need to face it. We need to root it out of the church. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? These, these believers in Pergamum just stood by. They just stood by. Jesus says, you have some. These are yours. You know. They let it happen. Now sure, they didn't do it themselves. They didn't participate in the sin themselves. They just stood by and let it happen. They were still accountable for not confronting it. And that's the punishment. The punishment in verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now notice the way he, Jesus introduced himself to this church at the, at the very beginning. Verse 12, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. That's how Jesus chooses to introduce himself to this church. Jesus comes at them aggressively with a sword. Now, if you remember, at Ephesus, he was the one who walks among the seven lampstands. In Smyrna, he's the first and the last. In Pergamum, him who has the two-edged sword. Jesus is not mincing words here. He leaves no question what he wants them to know about him. 
They may have been living in fear of being ostracized by their neighbors. Maybe, maybe in fear of being looked down by their, upon by their, their co-workers. Or in fear of the, of the Roman governor who had the power of the sword. Jesus says, don't forget who I am. Don't forget who I am. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but not, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't think that you can justify or rationalize your behavior. He says, I'm not interested in your excuses. I'm not interested in your social justice, your enlightenment, your progressive inclusion. Don't try to excuse it, justify it, or explain it. He says, I can see through to your real reasons. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts, the intentions, the heart. It says, it's only cover for your own evil desires, your laziness your complacency. Repent, or I'm coming with my sword, and I will slice you up. He's referring to the entire church. The entire church is accountable. Not just the false teachers, not just those that are participating in the sin, but also those who are holding fast to God's word, but are not doing anything about the sin that is in their midst. James 4.4, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Church is never to be a place the mingling of God and the world. It's never to be a place where unbelievers feel safe and secure. Unbelievers should not feel safe and secure in church. It's a place where unbelievers should feel frightened because of their sin. The knowledge of being confronted in their sin should frighten them. There is a holy God who will judge sin one day. But he loves them. They're fearful, but they're welcome. It's where they can hear the truth. Be offered a a chance to repent, to be saved. Their unrepented sin should be convicting, not comforting. You can never suppress sin by compromising with it. Yes, we we want to reach out in love. We do. We want to reach out to them in love. We want to bring in unbelievers to hear the truth of Christ. We want them to experience our love and kindness and, and graciousness. But never Never give them the false 
security that they belong until they know Jesus Christ. Compromise is so serious, Christ says, if you don't stop, I'll make war against them. The sword of my mouth. And that in itself could be a reference back to to Balaam. Back in Numbers 22, 31, it says, The Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And you know what Balaam did? You know what he did? Smart guy. He bowed all the way down to the ground. The Lord pulled a sword on Balaam. The Lord will come with a sword against a compromising church. You must judge error in the church. You must keep the church pure. Stand firm against compromise in the world. We need to understand the problem. We need to guard against pollution. We need to consider the punishment. We need to remember the prize. Verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I just love the fact that Jesus ends each of these letters with a, with a promised reward for those who repent and overcome to the end. Do you love that? He doesn't just confront us. I have this against you. This is what I'm going to do. The end, he says, but if, but if you repent, if you turn from that, I will reward that should give us hope that we have an opportunity when we get it wrong to do better and to get it right. So far, Christ has, has promised those who conquers, those in Christ, to eat from the tree of life, to be given the crown of life, to be protected from the second death. Now he says that they will be given some of the hidden manna, a white stone with a name that no one knows. Hidden manna. God promised manna to sustain his people in the wilderness. We know that. And they were wandering in the, in the wilderness. Well, in Pergamum, rather than eating this manna, God's people were tricked by Balaam into eating meat sacrificed to idols. As a church, we must avoid the error of substituting false manna for the true manna. And what is true manna? John 6, 51 I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the one who will always sustain us. He will give us all that we need. He is the real manna. He is hidden from sight right now. He is hidden from sight right now, but one day, one day he will be revealed to in all his glory. Amen? We need to feast from him, what he provides for us. We do not need to feast from the world. He offers so much more. Overcoming to the end, we will receive all the benefits of knowing Christ. Jesus says, I'll give you all you need to sustain your life forever. 
until we have that ultimate feast with him. That's related to the second part of the prize, the, the white stone, the new name. There are a couple thoughts with the white stone. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the victors in the athletic games who would receive a, a victor's crown or a wreath. Well, sometimes they would also receive a, a white stone as, as part of their prize, kind of like our Olympics where they get the, the gold medal, right? The white stone was his admission pass into the festival that was held following the games for all the victors. Could it be that the overcomer will receive the ticket to the eternal victory celebration in heaven? Well, I want to go to that. There's also a practice in the day that, the, that personal invitations to exclusive parties were sent on a white stone tablet. And it would have a private code word on it, kind of like a pin that nobody else knew. It's proof that you were the recipient. And you would present it at the party as proof of your invitation. Christians who remained pure and uncompromised probably wouldn't have gotten invited to many of these parties. But Jesus says, don't worry. You may be rejected now. But one day, you will receive a special invitation to my great feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. That's an invitation that I want to receive. Don't you? The blending of beliefs has plagued God's people since the early days of Israel, and it still exists today. Many churches have crumbled under the banner of being tolerant. Tolerant. Just look around at the hollowed-out shells of some denominations that have compromised. We hear so little about sin and repentance in the church nowadays. We reduce and we discount it in an attempt to, to remain mainstream. I mean, who wants to hear about hell and damnation? So we, we don't confront sin in the church anymore. Even the so-called sinner's prayer just kind of glosses right over it. Churches today are often little more than psychological pep rallies. You can leave feeling pretty good about yourself. Whatever Satan cannot curse or crush, he will seek to corrupt with compromise. The idea of a God that would send people to hell is not popular, so we don't talk about it much. If we do, we gloss over it, minimize the judgment part. Judgment from God is not going to be that bad, not as bad as he says. Instead, we, we focus on the good, loving God. God loves you so much. He is just so happy on how swell you turned out. As Christians, we're, we're not called to be combative or antagonistic. However, we must not give safe harbor to things that are contrary to God's word. Today's church has become so fixated on, on being relevant that in many ways it has become irrelevant. It's the opposite of Romans 12, 12, not to conform ourselves to the pattern of this world. The church is often not much different from the world. 
people see no reason to become a part of it. They're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. I mean, Youth Pride Conference. We have some professing Christians that won't take a stand, a firm stand on even the most basic tenets of the faith. Jesus is the only way. Some say, well, I mean, he's the only way for me. But maybe somebody else has a, has a different faith journey. Who am I to say that their way is wrong? There was a, a famous, I'm not even going to call him a preacher, because he's not. He's an agent of Satan. It was on Larry King. And he was confronted about that. Do you believe that Jesus is the only Well, you know, Larry, I can't say. Who am I to say? I think that there's many paths. He has the largest church in the United States and Texas right now. Living out the gospel faithfully will make many upset. They will defame. They will push against us. But God will use it to draw people to himself. Wherever compromise could, would seek a foothold, we need to be vigilant. We need to be on guard. We need to speak the truth in love. Our goal is not condemnation. Our goal is not to condemn them. Our goal is to reconcile them. God will one day judge the world. Every soul will come before him. Are you just going to let them go? Are you going to let them go in their fallen state? Are you going to go and say, no, it's fine. <clears throat> it's okay. Our responsibility <clears throat> is to lead them to the cross. We need to guard against the dilution of true doctrine. If that makes us seem intolerant to some, so be it. We cannot define truth by our or their preferences. <clears throat> truth exists outside of popular opinion. It doesn't bend to popular demand either. We don't talk about suffering as a Christian anymore either. I mean, who wants to, who wants to be told that you're going to suffer as a Christian? I mean, that's not popular. Instead, we walk into many churches and they tell you, that's not true. Jesus wants you to be happy. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to be healthy. And, and He just wants you to have everything. If you trust Him if you trust him enough, he will give you everything you want. You can have your best life now. It's what Jesus wants for you. He just thinks you're great. He just loves you just the way you are. It's a church today. 
Well, if Jesus was upset about what was happening in Pergamum, I wonder what he thinks about us today. Church, it's lost its edge, its distinctiveness in our culture, compromising on the edges, complacent, sit back, allow it to happen. Well, if he called them to repent, must call us to repent as well. The believers of Pergamum were stuck in a really bad place where it was hard to be a Christian. But many remained committed to the truth, to Him. Many of us find ourselves in, stuck in really bad places too. Places where it's hard to be a Christian. In a culture that is completely opposed to it. Among family and friends and co-workers that, that push us to compromise. Living in a state of, of fear or weakness. Or just plain old laziness. Causing us to become complacent. Just allow, allow that pollution come in. We must remember the example here. Jesus calls us to remain strong in truth. God is the author of truth. But we never compromise on it. He calls us to keep his church pure. May we never be complacent to allow sin in his church. May we repent where we have. He calls us to, to persevere and overcome to the end. To receive the glorious reward. The promises to those that do. Hidden manna. All we need is found in Christ. The bread of life. White stone. The new name. A victor's medal. A VIP invite to the greatest celebration of all. Those are rewards worth overcoming for. Keep your eye on the prize. It's like the Olympic athletes who train. The Olympics come every four years. Those four years, those, those athletes train. I mean, they dedicate themselves. I mean, diet weight training and cardiovascular and just they dedicate themselves to it they sacrifice and their friends are are going out to to out to eat or going out to to party or whatever they're going to bed early they're getting up early and they're they're training they're prof- what they're called to do. Blood, sweat, tears, grueling days of training. But you know what? All worth it when they stand on that podium and they receive their reward. That's what Jesus is calling us to. I know where you live. I know it's hard. 
overcome. Persevere. One day, if you do, you will receive your reward. May we persevere. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you again, humbled by your word. Lord Jesus, this is not an easy letter for us to read. It's not a popular message. We would all love to to hear the message of Smyrna. You're just no complaints against us. But that's not who we are. And you know us. And I pray that you would Forgive us in those areas that we have compromised, those areas where we have become complacent, where we have allowed the world to infiltrate. Pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, help us turn from that, that you would give us a new boldness, a new commitment to remain firm in your truth. And even when it's not easy, and even when it goes against the grain of our culture and friends and society, that you would help us to keep our eye on the prize. That we would remain faithful to the end so that we could hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter to the joy of your Lord. I pray that that would be true for all of us here. Help us to do this in the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. In the name of Jesus, we thank you. Amen.